Well, it's good to be back with you guys this evening after a lovely time of fellowship around some wonderful food with your pastor and his family. We're going to be looking tonight in Hosea chapter 3. So you might be encouraged. I don't know. Maybe you, you wouldn't be. I don't know. But it's the shortest chapter in the book of Hosea. So I should be able to keep it around 30 minutes, no problem. Um, but a very wonderful chapter. Like many of the chapters in the book of Hosea or sections, uh, they're moving from and through judgment to salvation. Uh, so that's the same route this passage takes. So we're in chapter 3. Uh, the title of this evening's sermon is Transformed by the Unconditional and Incomparable Love of God. Transformed by the Unconditional and Incomparable Love of God. Let's ask the Lord's help and dive in. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it's true. We thank You uh, that You, by Your Spirit, uh, not only inspire this glorious Word, but You uh, now lead us into it. And we pray for Your help and Your grace uh, to attend to it, to hear it. Uh, and I pray, Lord, we would hear it well and be transformed uh, more and more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When I think of love, I think of seeing in that other person qualities and beauty that are so winsome, so delightful, so enticing, so overwhelmingly good that it creates in us an intense longing for the object of such beauty. Now this is uh, sort of the narrative or the story of my meeting my wife Elizabeth and coming to marry her. Or when I think about my own conversion and God opening my blind eyes to see the beauty of His infinite glory and love. Adoration and love is the only appropriate response to the infinitely loving, all-good God of creation. But when we when we consider a passage like ours this evening, our categories for love, our burst wide open, it simply cannot be contained by our past understandings of love. It is radical. It's incomparable because it is truly unconditional. Listen to... Hosea 3, 1 through 5, as I read it. And this, you'll hear first person. This is, this is autobiographical. Hosea speaking in the first person. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as, or just as, the Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought, her for a, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For, or because, the children of Israel shall dwell 
many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, that is, after exile, after judgment, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. This is the word of the Lord. Now note the movement of the passage in regards to Israel and us. It is from adultery and turning away from the Lord to false gods, to turning, seeking, and trembling to Yahweh, to David, to Messiah, and His goodness in the latter days. Love. The Lord's unconditional, incomparable love is the reason for this movement. It starts with God. It starts with His love. Also, did you notice, and you should have noticed because I pointed it out, that the story is being told in the first person. Sometimes I get ahead of my sermon manuscript. This isn't Hosea's first go-around with the Lord or with Gomer. His life, beginning back in chapter 1, his life is an enacted parable. That is to say, the life that the Lord has called him to enter into is a living out of God's life with his people. So his call back in chapter 1 to love an immoral woman and have children of immorality was a call for him to identify and discern a a, a woman of harlotry and set his affections on her because that is him living out according to God's command, God loving Israel initially. And this chapter, go again or go love again a woman. I think it's the same woman. It's still Gomer. He doesn't need to mention her name again. It's the same woman. He's saying, love again a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress just as the Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So there's this comparison going on. God's love for His bride, His people, and God's call of Hosea and his love for this unfaithful, adulterous wife. Now this would have been shocking even in the northern Israel, even in that culture that had turned away from God. The the fact that a prophet of God was doing such a thing would have been shocking and arresting. That's the whole point of God's call to Hosea to do this thing and to proclaim His Word. God's Word would actually give Hosea the right to take Gomer at this point to the city gates where justice was meted out and her to be stoned to death. That's the shocking reality of God's call here is for him to love again this woman who has broken his heart. Why? Because he's living out this enacted parable of Israel turning away, whoring after other gods, and breaking God's heart himself. There's a sense in which Hosea and other prophets, I can think about Jeremiah and Ezekiel in particular, they experience in their prophetic ministry something 
of the heart of God toward the people. They enter into God's own angst or pain or hurt over the infidelity of His people. So we see here in verse 1 the unconditional and incomparable love of God. Hosea must love Gomer like the Lord loves Israel. God's love for us is not like... Sorry, I just... God's love for us is not like our love for others. We don't, we don't naturally love like this. We don't naturally love the way God loves. This is grace. This is unconditional love. This is why it is incomparable. Hosea's actions, again, enter into the very heart of God. He enters into the pain of God loving a bride that is unfaithful. The Lord God calls Hosea to love Gomer, his wife, just as the Lord loves Israel despite their idolatry. And so, the adulterous wife is compared to Israel. The adulterous wife is compared to you and me as we relate to God. This is what I would say is the bad news section of the good news of the Gospel. But some can never hear the good news because they can't bear to hear this bad news. You are Gomer. I am Gomer. God in Christ is Hosea here setting his loving affections upon us, the unlovable. It's not as though there is some essence of deep down lovableness in each one of us that the Lord just needs to dust off, you know, knock the rust off, and ah, we can refurbish this jewel. That's not the way the text presents it. Which that might be uh, hurtful and upsetting to you to be characterized this way in terms of our unfaithfulness toward the living God. But this is what the text of Scripture is doing. This is what the text of Scripture is alleging against us. And actually, it's quite encouraging once we kind of get it down. Because we realize the unconditional nature of His love. There's nothing that we can do to make Him love us more or nothing we can do to make Him love us less. The reality of His love is He chooses to love. He loves us because He loves us. It's not because we're more righteous as Moses writes in Deuteronomy 9. No. It's not because we're more numerous. It's because at the base level, He loves. He chooses to love. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He also says in that chapter, we were enemies of God. Enemies of God. And yet He set His affections upon us, sent His Son to the cross to die for us. God's loving affection was not set on us because of anything good in us, anything delightful at all. We are an immoral and adulterous wife toward God. He chooses to love. What are some of the gods or God replacements that we turn to? 
You might look at the text of Hosea 3 tonight and think, idolatry, raisin cakes, how does this apply to me? But in reality, anything in life that we're setting our hopes and dreams, the thing, our longings, our deepest desires on, instead of or beyond God, anything that we love more than God, friend, is an idol. Our families, our spouses, again, our families, our children, all of these things we can make idols. Our work, I submit probably not just for men, women too, but the things that we do, our work, we so fashion our own identity out of the things that we do, it's so easy to make that an ultimate end and and make it an idol. And and our life and our self-worth is based upon that. If you're a child of God, there should be nothing that we set our affections on more than the Lord God Himself. He is the only one that can ultimately satisfy us. And Jeremiah would say it's something like this in Jeremiah 2 when he rebukes the people. He says, I, you know, you've committed these two evils, Jeremiah 2. You have you know, forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and you hew for yourselves broken cisterns that hold no waters. Now think about all the broken cisterns that you've hewed out over the course of your life. And even for the children in here, think about the things that you think, I just have to have that. No, the only thing that we just have to have is Christ. That, our triune God is the one and only thing in all of existence that we must have, that we must love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and long for. Anything that we love more than our glorious triune God is idolatry. We're looking, as the old country and western song would say, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. Again, God's love bursts the categories of, our boundary, of the boundaries of our love. Here there is a redeeming and a disciplining hand of God that is absolutely and clearly flowing from His hand of love. Look again at verses 2 through 4. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to any or to belong to another man, so I will be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Hosea's actions toward Gomer are clearly redemptive. We see the redemptive love of God and that Hosea buys his wife back out of bondage, out of slavery. Do you notice that she wasn't running to him saying, help, help, help. No, she was enslaved and seemingly happy to be there. We don't, we don't know. But, but he, you know, enacting God's pursuit of us, he pursues her. He pays the price of redemption, right? She didn't redeem herself. She didn't even try. And this is the nature of the Lord's redeeming love. Like in the exodus from Egypt and ultimately through the cross of Christ, God's redeeming love reaches down and pulls us up out of slavery. We cannot and we would not save ourselves. And then there's a disciplining aspect that's talked about in this text. You notice that Hosea also places her in this confinement. He he shuts her up so that she can't have relations with him or with any other man. 
Again, this is an enacted parable aspect of the passage. Hosea's actions are living are a living and observable illustration of what the Lord is about to do with Israel. And what, what Jesus does for us in the Gospel. Right? There, there's a sense in which this passage gives us a bit of a different nuance of the exile of Israel. Right? Typically, and, and this is here in this passage as well, like exile is judgment. Exile in the Old Testament is the death of the nation. Return from exile or restoration is resurrection from the dead. Very sweet, amazing gospel themes. And those are here too. But you get a hint in looking at this passage that God exiling His people that's being enacted through Hosea's relationship with Gomer is, is also a gracious thing. right? He's, he's, sh- he, he's, he's shutting them off from their kings who are, who are far from God. He's shutting them off from their, uh, from, from their idols, from the, the, the pagan priests. And all of this is His grace to ultimately woo and restore His people to Himself. Right? So this, I think this helps us to see you know, this fine line between the disciplining hand of God and the judging hand of God. And that God is often working through discipline. He's often working through judgment. In fact, there is no salvation apart from judgment. And we can see that plainly on the cross. There's no full forgiveness of sins if it's not for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ hang naked on the cross bearing the full vent of God's wrath on our behalf. Right? Somebody paid for it. Jesus paid the price for us. This is the Gospel. And so He shuts her up. And verse 4 gives the reason for all that Hosea is doing. Yahweh was removing from His bride, from Israel, all the things that were keeping her from delighting in Him. Her exile is actually redemption. It is, it is, ju- it is judgment. Sorry, judgment is salvation here. The Lord has to remove them from the land and their bogus kings and apostate priesthood and all their idols in order to present them to Himself as a spotless bride. Honestly, this sounds a lot like redemptive historically speaking, where we're at right now in redemptive history amid the already but not yet of Yahweh's great love for us in Christ. Jesus, our heavenly bridegroom, according to to Ephesians 5, is washing us with the water of the Word in order to present us to Himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Right? We're not currently celebrating yet Revelation 19, the wedding supper of the Lamb. But He is preparing His bride for that. There's lots of similarities there. So while we're one with Christ... Through his death, burial, and resurrection, we await the consummation. And Hosea 3 5 announces by quotation of Deuteronomy 4 29 through 30 the eschatological return and reunion of God's bride to himself, to his Messiah, great David's greater son. Let's look again at verse 5. Look at that with me, please. Afterward. Again, that afterward signals like after exile, after judgment. 
the children of Israel shall, this is promise, shall return and seek the Lord their God. This is what's promised. This is quotation from Deuteronomy 4, 29-30. This is promised. Way back in the fifth book of Moses, Moses promises that ultimately they will fail. Ultimately they will be judged. But in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 30, you have these promises that become the heart of the new covenant promise in the Old Testament prophets and then our new covenant hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That God is going to work through judgment through the death, burial, and resurrection of His people, and He's going to work through a coming future David to restore a people to Himself, to restore a chaste bride to Himself. And, and that's, what's being, that's what's being discussed here. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return. They'll seek the Lord their God and listen. And David, their king. Right? Hosea is an 8th century prophet. David has been dead over 150 years. He's not referring to the historical David. He's referring to great David's greater son. He's referring to Messiah. And he's bringing together in his prophecy all of the promises that God has made to David, that David would always have one to sit on his throne. He's bringing those promises together with these great Deuteronomic promises that God would restore his people to himself beyond exile. So this is a promise. And he says, And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. There is a humility, this trembling to the Lord and to His goodness. There is a humility. There is a fear of God, of Messiah. We are are not coming to be wed to a human. We're coming to the infinitely glorious triune God of the universe, the very lover of our souls. And this is faith, true faith, coming to trust in and depend upon Christ, our Messiah, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So how should being loved like this change us? Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you are loved infinitely, incomparably, unconditionally. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make Him love you less. Because His love for you is truly unconditional. And this should lead us to be a confident, humble, and contented people. It's hard to be arrogant or proud when you know that you are Gomer and that Yahweh loved you in Christ based on nothing good in you. He loves you because He loves you, period. He's, his wondrous love destroys any boasts, any claim on God's love. And let me just tag something on that because I know I'm I know I'm amongst like-minded folks here. I've always wondered over the years how the doctrines of grace could produce sometimes some of the most ungracious people that I've ever met in my life. Friend, brothers, sisters, if you believe what I'm preaching, that, that, that there's nothing 
that you've done to merit God's affections, nothing you've done to merit His love. You don't deserve it. You're Gomer. How can we be proud? How can we boast? I've met some arrogant reform people over the years. I don't know if it's like justification by theological precision or what, but just because we can dot our theological I's and cross our theological T's shouldn't lead us to be proud the better I understand God's Word and understand His unconditional love, it it leads me the opposite direction. It leads me to humility. It leads me to, to just thankfulness that He would love a sinner like me. But let me tell you what else. It doesn't leave me there groveling like I'm worthless because His love is unconditional and He loves me and He sets His affections on me in Christ and He sends Christ to the cross for me. There's nothing that can encourage and instill in me a greater confidence in God's unshakable love for me than that the starting point is that I'm Gomer. I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it to start with, so if I screw up a little bit, I don't not deserve it now. Therein lies the confidence Like the grace of God in the gospel, the gospel according to Hosea here, absolutely eliminates boasting and pride and arrogance. But it also absolutely destroys and eliminates this this navel-gazing focus on ourselves like we're just... How could anybody love me? Why do people put up with me? By the way, that's, that's not humility to begin with. That's like the ugly underbelly of pride. And so when we're loved by God in Christ, when we're loved as God loves His people through our Lord Jesus Christ, oh, it produces a humility, a confidence, a contentedness. It destroys the insecurity that often grips us. It destroys our need to perform to gain others' acceptance, including God's. And I got to say, sometimes in the more theologically precise churches, there can be a little bit of that going on, typically among the guys as well. And it's almost, again, it's almost this justification by theological precision and wanting to impress others by, oh, isn't he sharp? Doesn't he have all his stuff? Oh, he really, he really knows his stuff. I'm not, believe me, I'm not poo-pooing you knowing your stuff, but you need to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ more than you know your stuff. And that's coming from a guy with two master's degrees and a PhD, so I've spent a little time in theology, but any knowledge of God ought to lead us into humility and love for Him. And this helps us, again, to battle this self-loathing thoughts that the accuser of the brethren likes to throw at us. Ever hear him say, you're not good enough? You can never come back to God because of something you've done or thought? Well, again, that's a lie from the pits of hell because he never loved you because you were righteous, dear brother or sister. God's shocking, unconditional love should help us to rest and receive his acceptance. And yet, His love doesn't leave us as it found us. Both this passage points it out. Jesus, when He catches the woman in adultery and the, guys want to, the Pharisees want to stone Him, He doesn't say, oh, go, 
Keep living the way you're living. No, he says, go and sin no more. That the grace of the gospel redeems the gomer, but transforms us into a chaste bride, washing us with the water of the Word, bringing us into conformity with His good character and holiness. And this is, this is what we long for. This is what we desire. But, but in our one step forward, two steps back process of sanctification, the gospel of grace gives us confidence that He's going to keep us in that process and not let us go, right? And finally, this love of God operable in our lives should result in our ability to love like no one else on planet earth. To choose to love that child who is hard to love. To choose to love our spouse when marriage isn't all we thought that it was going to be. And I got a pretty amazing wife who's pretty easy to love. And yet, in marriage and in child rearing, this idea that God loved me based on nothing that I've done really helps me have a gear on my transmission box to be able to say, I can choose to love. Like, they don't have to do or say the right thing to then enable me to love. God loved me when I was an enemy. God loved me when I was Gomer. My, my, my wife, my kids are behaving this kind of way. I can choose to love them in this situation, just as God in Christ has chosen to love me. Also, to choose to love that brother or sister in Christ in the church that you avoid, perhaps. Don't know if any of that's going on in here this, this evening. But in the flesh, we may not like some people. We may avoid them. Yeah, please don't use the, the line that, well, we're just different. We have different interests. We have different interests. No, because the measure of our love is Christ's love for us. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So what this passage is pointing to, the gospel of grace, God in Christ's love for us, in Christ dying for us, is the measure by which we are to love one another. Jesus jacks up the requirements from love your neighbor as yourself to love as I have loved. And this is what authenticates our gospel to a watching world. I'm just getting to know you guys. But what would the rest of this area see if they got to know Grace Baptist Chapel? Would they see the love of God on display? Would they see you all loving one another? Well, this is, this is the implication of this passage. If we're loved this way, we should love like no one else on planet earth. There should, there should be no one that loves like the church loves. Now, there are a myriad of ways that this incomparable and unconditional love of God can be borne out in our lives, but I want to leave it here this evening because I'd be encouraged to see Christians simply choosing to love one another. According to this passage, John 13, as well as what Jesus says in John 17, our mission to the world would be greatly helped if we would simply choose to love one another. Perhaps the world would begin to listen if they saw this. I think that's what Jesus is getting at in those passages. Well, let's pray. 
Our Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for Christ as the demonstration of that love dying for us. And Lord, we thank you that as we step back into the Old Testament and we consider this passage and how it refracts light upon Christ dying for us. Maybe sometimes we can say that so often that it loses its grip on us. I pray, Father, that you would help us uh, by your Spirit, by your grace and for your glory uh, to know your incomparable love and unconditional love, lean into it, and, and love just as you have loved us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.